Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. Uh, I'm your host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. Before we get to our guests and topic, this is a sort of a new new version for us. We're all isolated. We're all sitting in our separate spaces, recording on new technology. So if the sound's not quite as good as you're used to, I apologize. But as everybody appreciates, we're all making do with the situation we've got. Adam is running away from his noisy dog as we speak. And we're going to keep this personal, all right? Uh, no editing out the silly things. So today, first, this is the first podcast since we've all been in isolation and we thought it'd be important to talk about you know what's going on in the real estate industry as it relates to COVID. So our guest today is a gentleman named Michael Brooks, who is the president and CEO of RealPack. Michael's been on the program before, so if you want to go and find out more about his background, you can go and listen to the previous podcast. But this podcast, you know, is part of our real estate forum. We thought uh, we'd bring Michael back on with his experience and you know he's been on committees talking to basically everybody in the industry. And so we wanted to get his perspective on you know just what's going on right now and how the real state community is handling the pandemic. So welcome, Michael. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Adam and Aaron, for having me. So Michael, let's just get right into it. You know, maybe let's start with how the big players in the marketplace are handling this and kind of what their perspective is. I think you need to segment it by land use type. And we all know that Hotels are probably the worst hit across North America. On one of our committee meetings, one of the participants said we manage 1,400 hotels and 50% are closed. For others of our members, if they, depending on the kind of hotel they have, if it's suburban hotels versus downtown versus resort hotels, but they are clearly the worst hit. Arguably, retail is number two. And I think that started with the malls, with the store closures. And now we, of course, we have the mandatory store closures except for essential services. So I think everybody who has retail is hit a little bit on the landlord side. Even if you've got a food-anchored shopping center, you've got some smaller tenants who are forced to close. So I would put them number two on the damage so far list. I would put apartments as the potential next up-and-comer for two points of view. Number one is that, well, it's a huge sector, you know, 40% plus of all accommodation in Canada's rental. When you think about the potential number of people who will be unemployed, I think I heard yesterday up to 3 million people, 10% of our population unemployed. And you think of how many of those would be renters and how many of them might be able to scrape together the April the 1st rent payment, but maybe not, and probably not the May 1st payment. There's a lot of discussions that's got to happen with department landlords coast to coast. And then it has, we have this rent strike stuff that's being chopped around by some of the, I don't know if it's fair to call them anarchist groups, anti-poverty groups, but I'm just calling them crisis free riders for now, who are trying to take advantage of the situation, particularly in those provinces where evictions have been suspended. So they feel like there's no consequences for them not paying rent because the landlord, his hands are tied. That's not a good thing. So I would say those sectors are top of my hit parade in terms of of action. I think office is so far okay. I think industrial is so far okay. I think seniors is so far okay. So it's really a segmented market and you have to look at that closely. As far as other participants in the community, we all know the capital markets have taken a huge hit possibly oversold, but no one's really called a bottom. It was nice to have two days of up markets the two days before today. You know, it's March 26th. 
but I'm just not sure if we're at the bottom or not. But there are some pretty good buys if you believe this is short term. On the lender side, and Aaron, you would know this being part of that community, the lenders are already receiving requests for mortgage deferrals, interest payment deferrals, going interest only as opposed to blended P&I. And they're getting it from the hotel owners, from the retail owners, and even on a preliminary way from the apartment owners. So I guess we'll know more about the apartments maybe in the second week of April after we see what the what the rent arrears looks like from the April the 1st payroll. So the banks will have to manage through a lot of discussions with their clients. I can tell you that from all of our members, and I just got off a call with 40 of my CEOs, the banks are being fantastic. The banks are listening. They are working with their clients. This is a time for the banks to shine and for relationships to be important. And I can remember it was the same thing in the early 1990s. If you had a good relationship with your bank and they knew you and you knew them and they knew you were a good operator, you're credible, they will work with you and we will all get through this. So those are kind of the main sectors. The priority, I'm going to say, Aaron and Adam, for us, totally changed two weeks ago. You know, if you'd asked me what was top of mind two months ago, I would have said ESG. I would have said prop tech. I probably would have said diversity and inclusion. When you're in your episode we recorded with you, we covered those extensively because those were the top of mind for you at the time. And that was probably six months ago. And that was the world then. And I guess it's shifted dramatically since. Absolutely, Adam. It's total. I mean, really, as of two weeks ago, everything, we canceled all of our events up until September including our regular committee meetings, you know, with guest speakers and the like, we immediately focused on business continuity for our members and government relations. And that is 100% of my time right now. We've actually pulled two of our employees who were in events and that kind of thing into the GR group just to keep on top of everything that's happening in that space. So on the retail side, we've already made a submission for property tax reduction. As a start, you know, matching deferral, matching abatement because of the malls being so hard hit early on in this process. On the apartment side, we've made a submission to the an integrated submission to the federal government and every province in Canada around apartment relief. And we need to work with governments to make sure that no one's left behind on this. It's not just about the renters. It's also about the apartment owners. They've got to make mortgage payments. Yeah. Michael, in your conversations with you know these varied groups, are people talking about what duration of this, you know, the current situation can be withstained with sort of the capital that all the different layers kind of have held on to? I mean, I think about the, the retail tenants and the retail owners. Are they capitalized or well capitalized enough to kind of see themselves through this for three, four months? That if it's if it's only three or four months, they can kind of skate through. Is there a tipping point where all of a sudden they're just gonna be out of money to continue to make mortgage payments, continue to make property tax payments. I'm thinking about, you know, CAM is accumulating on a month by month basis. Those tenants are not making any money. So are they getting CAM relief? Like how does this all trickle out? And at what point do we start going, okay, if it lasts longer than five or six months, there's even more significant consequences? It's a very good point. And this is why individual low debt ratios, low payout ratios, access to capital lines of credit has become so important. And in that respect, this is a different time for at least our member companies than the late 1980s. Very few of our members are highly levered. 
most of them will have leverage well below 50%. Even some of the pension funds who do have some leverage could be around 20%. So the balance sheets generally, the REITs, the publicly traded real estate operating companies, the pension funds, the fund managers are generally very good. So we're going into it, I think, with more dry powder or more reserves than we might have back 25 years ago. Having said that, how long we can last is a really good question. Some people are doing capital plans and recovery plans to July of 2021. So they're thinking, okay, so this is going to drop. Maybe it'll start to drop in the late summer or early fall. There'll be a long time. It'll be a U-shaped recovery, hopefully not an L-shaped recovery. And then, what's, what's the difference? Well, L means we go down and we stay bumping along the bottom for a long period of time. That's almost a worst case scenario if you think of the letter L. A U-shaped scenario is we go down, then we have a period to stabilize, and then we come back up pretty quickly. There's a few pundits I've been following in the U.S. who are hoping for a V-shaped recovery. So as soon as we get through the pandemic and infection rates drop, significantly and quickly that market transactions resume, values get back to where they were pre the pandemic. So a V-shaped recovery. I can't tell you which will happen. I look at the day, same data that you and all of your listeners listen to, read rather, and it just depends on how quickly we can stop the growth of these infections. It's an interesting dynamic. I mean, yeah, let's assume the pandemic is, you know, two, three, four months. Assuming, as you said, it's March 26th, and we were talking off air before we went live that, you know, China's starting to release people back into the workforce and parks are starting to fill up again. And let's hope that they've kind of, that is the, the set timeline for how long it takes to go into quarantine and get control of this. But, you know, that recovery period, I mean, think about like you talk about retail, hotel, apartments offering rent relief at some form or fashion. We're offering, you know, lender payment relief. There's tax concessions, you know, utility concessions. A lot of that, though, is not free. Like It's not saying you don't have to pay. It's just we're deferring that payment down the road. You know, it's going to take a long time, especially this last four or five months where you're giving us particularly those retail tenants where they're really making no payments for five or six months. How long is it going to take for them to come back up to save enough money to scrape enough cash to recoup and give their landlord back the money that they've been deferred? I guess that's the V versus U versus L concepts. I think the V, U, L, yet to some extent it impacts that. Again, some of the lessons from the early 90s were this practice, and maybe we saw it through. 2007, 2008 were what we call blend and extend. So in the retail world, maybe you would extend the lease and you would amortize the total amount of the deferred rent over the you know fixed term of that extension. I think those two generally will go together because if you only have a short amount of term left, then you don't have enough to amortize that cost over. On the apartment side, it's probably the same game plan. So you give a, an apartment tenant a three-month you know, rent deferral or reduction in rent to what they can afford, if any. Then you would want to probably extend them for a further 12 months so that you've got a period of time to try to catch back. But I agree, there'll be a number of tenants whose business is slow to ramp up who can't even afford, you know, to pay the deferred amount over the remaining term. 
Do you have a sense of how our private partners, the private landlords are doing in all in these these sort of asset classes? You know, like you mentioned, the REITs and the pension plans, like they're all well capitalized and a lot of them are, are heavily regulated where they're kind of being forced to hold capital aside. But some of those private guys, they, let's say they got into the business 25, 30 years ago, have kind of been skating in with wind at their back for 25, 30 years. Do we have a sense that they've been putting kitties away and putting cash under their mattress to support themselves during a time like this? It's a good question. I'm not aware of any poll that assesses liquidity because the ones that are family owned, privately owned, often they're just a conduit. Sometimes it's people's livelihood. They live on the net proceeds after they pay property tax and expenses. Obviously, there are debt limits in terms of CMHC financing. Who knows whether some have gone to the secondary market for additional financing. So I don't think you can make a blanket generalization about that market. Fair, fair. Well, you know, what other kind of messages do you want to put out there, Mike? What other topics do you think are important for our listeners to hear? Any good news, too, would probably be nice to, uh, <laughs> nice to hear yeah, as well. Please. Point, you know? Yeah, we're two weeks in and we got good news. Well, I think that <laughs> I think the good news is, number one, I sure see the the human spirit rising under this adversity. Yeah, we have some people who are not staying two meters apart, but the fact that People are able to keep their sense of humor, their sense of humanity, continue to engage with each other, continue to want to function and keep their day job and be a contributor and be seen as a contributor. That's really positive. One of the things I'm starting to think about is how does our shared experience in sitting at home and working remotely through Zoom and Slack and Microsoft Teams and whatever, how is that going to change? our outlook and the way we want to work and shop and do things six months from now. Is office design still the same? Are people going to be comfortable in open plan offices? Are they going to want a little bit of separation from their germy neighbors, Uh, especially if we have the dance, the article Hammer and the Dance? The dance part of Hammer and the Dance is that little flare-ups might happen until we get a vaccine and until we get effective treatment. You know, so does it change office design? The co-working space has got to be decimated by this. Why would you continue to pay subscription fee for a co-working space when you're forced to stay home? So that's a kind of a subtext on that'll maybe impact the office side, you know, yet to come. Retailing, can the malls re-tenant all of their space? Or, you know what, it's just they're all bankrupt or insolvent or reducing in size as a result. What happens to all that space in the malls? I don't know the answer to these questions. They're just popping up in my mind as we go. Uh, What will happen to traffic? There's some people, some cities now thinking about closing up the downtown streets to cars, the least of which so that people who go out for a walk with their dog can separate themselves by six feet. Because if there's only sidewalk to walk on, can you really do that? So you know, are there some urban design implications for what we're seeing? I think that everybody will remember these days for the rest of their lives. You guys, Aaron and Adam, you're young. You will remember this for the rest of your life, what you did, how you worked, what the milestones were. You'll be thinking of this a lot. So It'll impact future decision-making it, by exactly, everybody. Exactly. It will do that. And how about the way that Construction works, you know, there's been a lot of been monitoring the issues on construction, which for those projects still proceeding, I've heard, you know, 70 to 80% efficient, you know, there are some drags on construction, 
We understand problems with inspectors getting out to sites to do interim inspections on electrical or plumbing or whatever. And is there a better way to do that? Maybe some of this pushes us to quicker and better digitization of our business. The fact that we've all had to digitize right now, I think will push us forward much quicker than if we otherwise hadn't had this. For example, at RealPack, I'm used to signing checks. Every two weeks I do a check run, you know. I'm not signing checks anymore. You know, my employees are scattered. How do we do that? You know, what's the digital transfer system? It's funny how none of our members have the same issue. They sign physical <laughs> checks. <laughs> well, it's, it's, that was always probably a prior or, or an item for you to get to a project to solve at some point, but it just yes. made it a priority and you just figured it out as fast as possible. Yeah, at First National, we went through the same thing. Notarization of documents, execution of documents, yeah. Yeah, signing checks, endorsing checks, all of those problems that we knew we probably had to figure out at some point or another to go digital, but they always were on the back burner, quickly became top priority. Yeah. I was also one of these dinosaurs that always carried around cash. I, I kind of felt naked if I didn't have some cash in my pocket. You know, maybe it's, a, it's an old school thing. Now, I've had a $50 bill in my pocket for two weeks. No one wants my cash. No one wants your money. No, yeah. I'm tapping everything. How does that change yeah. banking? How does that change, you know, everything that we're doing? Yeah. So we, we didn't stuff. touch on industrial, but you got to suspect that the acceleration of delivery in Amazon and fulfillment centers, which we're already experiencing massive growth, that's going to be one area that likely will come out from this in better shape than it entered. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I haven't heard any negatives on industrial yet. I see the delivery trucks on my street. All the restaurants who've gone from sit down to takeout, they're all on, you know, skip the dishes or Uber Eats or something like that, similar platform. So will that become a habit that more of us, not just the millennials, morph onto? That's another change that we might see coming out of this in, in the way we deal with, I think we saw a start of it, virtual kitchens. Virtual kitchens was a concept that started maybe a year ago. You probably heard of it maybe on your speakers, where, you know what, instead of having a restaurant with takeout, let's just do kitchens in an industrial area. And their sole job is to make food for a delivery platform. That's all yeah. they do. They don't I need retail say. premises. I've got one that opened up near me in, in South Etobicoke and it serves, you know, a high-end a Thai restaurant, a high-end pizza place. And there's a couple other sort of really good restaurants that I would never get access to unless I was walking around downtown or make a reservation. Now it's a quick couple of taps on my phone and I've got sort of gourmet pizza at my door. It's amazing. It sounds good. Send some my way. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I'm sure they got it in Markham too. Yeah, um, before do. we let you go, Michael, maybe just touch on some of the responses you're getting or hoping for perhaps from different government layers. Look, what I can say about government is, you know, you can criticize the policies perhaps, but from my perspective, they're doing a fantastic job. When you think about this, men and women working from home, trying to collaborate in a crisis with everybody asking for something. Every business in Canada probably has a letter into every level of government with their hands out. And they have to triage and figure out, okay, on an absolute basis, is this industry worth giving money to? On a relative basis, who should I start with? So we saw oil and gas, for example, was this week. I don't think we've got to and we saw banks early, but maybe on a preliminary way. I don't know that we've got to retail yet in everybody's minds. And we certainly haven't got to apartments yet. So absolute need, 
relative need relative to other sectors. How much will it cost us? Oh, my God, we're spending a ton of money. How much are our our taxes going to go up at the end of this? How are we going to pay for this? Are they printing money? So that back end part, no one's really thought through. You know what? No one's really worried about it. That's later. Right now, it's an emergency. Let's get cash out into the system. So I think governments at all levels are doing a terrific job. I know in Toronto, Mayor Tory's been in touch with us, the real estate community. What can we do for you? How can we help you? So kudos to the politicians generally, know what everybody else thinks, but that's a brutally tough job right now, and they're doing great. And same with the health professionals. Oh, my God, those people. Frontlines doing a fantastic job. This banging the pots thing that, you know, you've heard about at 730 at night. We're starting to see that. We've got several nurses on my street. Oh, man, without them, where would they be? So kudos to the politicians, kudos to the health professionals and everybody else who's keeping us going. Even the Walmart and Loblaws workers, you know, standing there serving everybody with masks on. Yeah. Or the people working in grocery stores, all the delivery people. I mean, it is amazing. There are a lot of people that are risking, they're taking risks for the benefit of everybody else. Yeah, no, it's, uh, we're, we're showing our true colors as Canadians, and we just got to get through this. My job is to get everybody to the other side economically intact. I like that message. I think that's, uh, <laughs> is that a good parting thought? Is that, uh, yeah, is that that's a good parting thought. That's, yeah. okay. that's what I'm focused on every day. But Mike, we, we want to thank you for coming on the podcast. This is an interesting uh, way of trying to get the podcast done, all of us remote, but I think it uh, worked out okay. And again, you know, we're two weeks in right now. Maybe it'd be interesting to have you back on in a couple of weeks when there's more uh, insight from the government position. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for hosting us. And thank you to First National for powering the podcast. And thanks to our listeners for listening. Thanks, Mike. Bye, Mike. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.